0: Jameson said that um, theory was the um, genre of postmodernism. Therefore, I think the podcast should be the medium of the afterlife of postmodernism. Yes,
1: you heard it here first. So I think, I think we had to at least... We had, <laughs> Never we had,
0: write that word. Always <laughs> be talking about postmodernism. Never write it down. Do not write it down.
2: everyone to Alpha Bunga Bunga the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history today we're talking about <clears throat> uh, postmodernism So, in Frederick Jameson's classic 1984 essay, Postmodernism, or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, he states that every position on postmodernism in culture, whether apologia or stigmatization, is also at one and the same time and necessarily an implicitly or explicitly political stance on the nature of multinational capitalism today. That's really wordy, I hope the rest of this is a lot more fluent than that was. So, anyway, logically we could look at the culture of the past 40 odd years and conclude that it's mostly shit. We don't like the nature of multinational capitalism, therefore we don't like postmodernism and vice versa. Postmodernism in culture is characterized by a decentered and fragmented self, depthlessness or superficiality, and a loss of historicity. So that everything is new but nothing seems new, that change has no direction, it's just all a load of meaningless flux. So, consequently, this would mean that we, all, we think that neoliberalism, or post-Fordism, or late capitalism is also shit. That what we have now is not progress, but regress. We've got an unserious culture, dead politics, and regressing living standards, and, even grander terms, a world out of conscious collective human control. But Jameson also encourages us, in that famous essay, to be properly dialectical about this cultural development called postmodernism. So... And I'm quoting here, Marx powerfully urges us to do the impossible, namely to think of developments positively and negatively all at once, to see capitalism as the best and worst thing to ever happen to humanity, to see it as catastrophe and progress all together. I think generally that's a good attitude. So, again, quoting Jemison, can we in fact identify some moment of truth within the more evident moments of falsehood of postmodern culture? Is there anything good that we can take away from postmodernism? Now, at the end of the end of history, what is that legacy? And actually, have we even left postmodernism? So, I'm Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo. We've got Ben Fogel, who's in Rio, ever itinerant Ben Fogel. We have Phil Cunliffe in Canterbury, and we have George Hoare in London, who I'm going to pass over to now. Who's actually in the same room as our guest today? Who's a return guest? Very happy to welcome back Catherine Liu, George.
1: Yeah, thank, thanks, Alex. It's quite unusual that we have more than one person in the same room whilst recording this podcast. Um, it's a lonely and just to, <laughs> Exactly. So just to say that we're listening to our. Our listeners, we're we're populist at least in that sense. This is a suggestion from one of our listeners to uh, to tackle the idea of, of postmodernism and its political consequences head on. Um, so I think I'm a good host for this uh, particular episode because I'm fundamentally skeptical. Because
3: you're a postmodernist?
1: No, uh, precisely the opposite. I'm fundamentally skeptical of the idea that you can have an interesting conversation about postmodernism. Um, so here to prove me wrong uh, is uh, recidivist, so repeat guest, uh, Catherine Liu, who's Professor of Film and Media Studies at UC Irvine, um, to talk to us about postmodernism. So hi, Catherine. Hi. Um, so, yeah, just to get us started, um, to quote again from the endlessly quotable Jameson. Um, so this, this is this, this famous book that Alex uh, referenced, so Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism. So he, he he starts off in, uh, in in quite strident terms. So uh, quote: um, the last few years have been a marked uh, have been marked by an inverted millenarianism in which premonitions of the future, catastrophic or redemptive, have been replaced by senses of the end of this or that, the end of ideology, art or social class, the crisis of Leninism, social democracy, of the welfare state, etc. etc. Taken together, all of these perhaps constitute what is increasingly called postmodernism. The case for its existence depends on the hypothesis of some radical break or, or rupture, generally traced back to the end of the 1950s or to the early 60s. So just to set this up a little bit, the end of the end of history, have we reached a, a, a stage or a situation where going back to this this very influential book of Jameson's is, is a good place to start, Catherine?
0: Well, I think that um, I'm not a skeptic of postmodernism. I actually am. I hate it as a term, but I feel like we've reached a point, and in many ways, thanks to your podcast, because you've clarified this, that we can fully historicize um, what Jameson meant by postmodernism, and by what we can understand as postmodernism, which what I which is what I would say is a um, positive and negative um, capitulation of the left, because in that quote that um, you. Mentioned, George, in the very beginning, Jameson actually declares the end of social democracy, the end Mm. of the welfare state. And we know this was published in 1984 as an essay and then republished in this giant volume by Duke in um, 1991 that... um, Many members of the um, left were scratching their heads when Margaret Thatcher won in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. And um, I've gone through this before, but I think that it's hard not to see in Jameson's um, declaration of the end of social democracy, um, a kind of celebratory attitude as well, that we're going to be liberated from this kind of class reductionist leftism to what he's going to think of as a novative cultural logic. And um, we can see that the capitulation of the left and its inability to actually understand what um, those defeats meant, you know, have delivered us today too. And I think that one of the virtues of being leftists today is that we can look at this in a self critical way because first I should say that I was in graduate school when this came out and I feel like I'm doing my penance because I totally parroted these lines like I talked about this thing that he talks about called high modernism which is ridiculous nobody calls anything high modernist none of the modernists called themselves high modernists and what is low modernist to begin with so I just want to focus on Jameson's um, reading of Charles Jenks's postmodernism, which declared the um, beginning of postmodernism in architecture in 1972 on July 15th, when the Pruitt-Igoe housing projects were um, dynamited. And that was a really tragic event because these housing projects were built in 1956 in a way Um, opened in 1956, and um, African-Americans in St. Louis were really happy to live in these new modernist um, high-rises. And um, by the 60s, they were crime-ridden, they were in, in disrepair, but it was because of this um, segregationist, fundamentally racist housing policy that hated this idea of public housing. And that these were um, places that were left to rot, that by 1972, 1973, um, they could only be dynamited because no one saw any value in large infrastructural projects that would be um, solutions. Everyone hated planning. Now, why would a leftist, a self-professed Marxist, we, who actually said, never stop, periodizing whatever read this um event in history purely through the eyes of a reactionary um um architectural critic charles jenks um with postmodernism. Sorry, oh I'm, no, I'm, no, sorry no no i
1: think i think that's a that's a great a great place to start is it, which is why? Why is there a, a famous, or perhaps the most famous, Marxist cultural critic who takes this this specific line? But I think before we before we delve into this, and we're going to talk about this this the specific housing project and and the the documentary which which rises out of it as well. Um, but before we we start, so I think there'll probably be some listeners who will be a little bit sceptical about a discussion in postmodernism in in general. Um, and this is a question that I wanted to start with. Which is is there any way to talk about postmodernism, which doesn't devolve fairly quickly into quite sort of tedious terminological debates, and you basically need a, a, a graduate degree in, in in social sciences or humanities to to follow? Like what why is this why is this something that that our, our listeners should be? Sufficiently engaged with to listen to the the end of of the podcast and to donate to our, our patreon
3: as well of course um, because
0: um it, it postmodernism is it was an academic sanctioning of irrationality so if okay. you think why if you think like irrationality is cool it's it, because yeah, in it's a cool. way postmodernist academics said yeah reason is really bad and it's really elitist well,
3: so just, um, just to just if I can jump in Catherine <laughs> um, sure. Catherine with. Can you give us like an example of um, what you just said about irrationality? So where it would be that feeling that irrationality is the kind of the
0: right approach or a cultural
3: a cultural expression of that, just to well, clarify it for our
0: listeners. Well, like rational city planning or even um, like the modernist clean line um architectural structures that Le Corbusier um, designed for the city for living. Um, cities like Brasilia that were planned from the ground up or these large infrastructural projects that were part of the post-war rebuilds throughout the world. Um, these um, ways of designing um, cities and buildings and furniture were all about, you know, trying to find efficiency, mask produced high quality modern design for the masses was viewed as a um, an ideal, a post-war ideal. On another level, you could say that um, also it's related to the idea that like art, it has, and high art, and music and symphony has a kind of um, complexity that demands attention and craft and that we should be obeying this. Well about the nineteen and, and respecting this in about the early nineteen eighties, leftists were the first I would say like from Stuart Hall to Dick Hebdige to um my favorite, Andrew Ross, um, were celebrating this kind of the people's point of view. Like, people don't like modernism. People don't like clean lines. People don't like classical music. People don't like literature. People don't like reason. People don't like weather reports. Andrew Ross wrote a book (laughs) called Strange Weather about how weather reports were elitist. I'm not joking. I mean, it really is a left... I read it, strange weather. It's really a left apologia for climate deniers. It's like, well, elitist experts tell us that you know the temperature is rising, but people on the ground experience weather in a completely different way. And it so this like, sort of doesn't take it I just to account count, my feelings.
4: Can, can, uh, can I come in here quickly? <laughs> sure. uh, uh, this kind of really reminds one of the contemporary right in terms of how they frame these sort of debates entirely. This is kind, of like, very oh, kind of like a Trumpy, Oh, it's kind of a yeah, it's kind of like a Trumpian critique, like we don't like this thing because people don't like it because these pointy heads. It's it's kind of like I, the academic critique of reason preempted the sort of new reactionary Trumpian critique of it, yes. right?
0: Yes, indeed it did. And I and I tried to, I, I, I wrote about this in um 2011 in the, in my book and I talked about billionaire populist Ross Perot, and you know, little did I know that I was actually prescient, you know, mm-hmm. that the billionaire populace was going to become president. But um, that aside, I wanted to say that if we think about the enlightenment, because like I'm a hardcore Marxist intellectual historian, you think about um, all the, the smallpox vaccine in the 18th century, people were terrified of the smallpox vaccine, even though through experimentation, people had proven that if you gave yourself a small weakened dose of the um um the active smallpox um, virus, you would create you would be you would um produce immunity. And so all these enlightenment philosophers were very pro-vaccine. Today we have elites that are anti-vaccine. Like this is what we've come to, people. this is this is postmodern, yeah, yeah. And this is why I hate postmodernism, but I think it's but I think we can bookend it now and sort of see what the Enlightenment and the Anti-Enlightenment has produced. So at the
1: end of the end of history potentially, just to to uh, reiterate Rebrand,
0: brand. always yeah. branding,
2: always be branding. Always ABB, <laughs> always be branding. That's the, exactly this, is the positive <laughs> this would be the positive legacy of postmodernism then, that, you know, like, yeah, it's all bullshit so, and it all, like, you know, dissolves into air, except, you know, you do have to brand yourself. And that's one thing that even progressives should be doing. <laughs>
4: True. So uh, once, uh, it's a again. meta version of uh, uh, Frederick Jamison's command, which I think is always historicized. In fact, it should be always brand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: When all of it is solid is melt, melt, has melted into air, that what's what's left is 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 the brand, and specifically Alpha Bunga Bunga. Go to the Patreon, con- contribute. Thank you very much. Um, but before we before we move on to some more concrete examples, because I think this is a useful uh, way to 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 deal with postmodernism. We're going to talk about architecture. We're going to talk about uh, literature as well. Um, just to, just to frame this in a I guess a specifically political frame, Catherine, do you think there's anything? worth salvaging from postmodernism so I think I think you said that you you hated it um what I mean is there anything worth taking from from something that you hate or do we do we talk do we take our Jameson books and and throw them no no
0: I think um in in a recycling no as a true um, Marxist and as true dialecticians we have to see the value in error Mm. also the value (laughs) in symptom symptom
1: so what is what is this um what is this symptom
0: It's a symptom of a quailing of confidence in Marxism in the early Mm. 80s, 90s, that um, even our um, most famous and charismatic left academics were showing. But I do want to say it's Jameson really. He branded himself with postmodernism. His contemporary, Mike Davis, however, who was with him along the way in many ways, never um, accepted the term. And then, um, and he wrote great urban histories and they were all very materialist. And so he never gave up on Marxism. You were rewarded if you gave up on Marxism at that Mm. point in time. And I also think that Jameson's branding himself with postmodernism as the um, one who was going to introduce this um, architectural term to literary studies and to cultural studies was really powerful. You know, he was... um, he was always being asked to to talk about this, even in the last London Review of Books, um, review of Knausgaard, the risible review that he wrote, Um, he uses the term postmodern as if it were a term of art. And I suppose that during that time, because I lived it, because I'm old enough to have lived it, If you were against postmodernism, you were seen as a fuddy-duddy and a horrible Kantian or something like that. Mm -hmm. So um, it was cool to be postmodern. And I'm not saying very many things to redeem it, except to say that the historical understanding of postmodernism as an inheritor of um, a kind of weak left counterculturalism that um, boomer theorists... um, uh, cloak themselves with that's very important for us because we should not commit this error again um so i don't think we should ever write about postmodernism. i don't think we should commit this word to writing any longer it should become part of oral and folk culture and it should only be spoken about in podcasts
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> but wait um, because, because jameson, jameson said that um Theory was the um, genre of postmodernism. Therefore, I think the podcast should be the medium of the afterlife of postmodernism. Yes,
1: you heard it here first. So I think I think we had at least we had, <laughs> never we
0: had, write that word. <laughs> Always be talking about postmodernism. Never write it down. Do not write it down. Do not had, even type it. We had we had
1: at least two people who wanted a uh, question here. <laughs>
0: yeah, I well, wanted to jump in sorry.
3: just to clarify. Then are you your criticizing jameson or you're saying he's um you're saying you disagree with what he what he wrote in that article or you're you're saying he helped precipitate precisely what he was criticizing
0: um i'm saying that he used the term as a kind of in a vague enough way that it appeared completely new to um cultural studies literary studies and um um, and um, people who are outside of um, architecture, he decontextualized it in a very postmodern way. He appropriated it, and he um, instrumentalized it within the field, within the field of the race studies and cultural studies. And um, um, you know, he was very effective. But I don't think it actually holds any historical water. I don't think it holds very. Good um, political water. I think it's actually um, a reactionary term and um, it's useful for us to see how um, successful he was in his deployment of the term and how how um people how popular it was among academics mm.
1: Mm. it definitely so, had uh it definitely had an audience there but i think um i think was, i think is that big enough no no I, th- I think i think ben had a, had a question here okay. specifically about the the afterlives of postmodernism modernism and, and that 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 academic context that you, that you just touched on
4: uh, so i think Okay. So I think while whatever it was branded as, because in a lot of academics were branding it as many different things, French theory, post-structuralism uh, or postmodernism the kind of moment of the sort of irrationalist craze in the late 80s and 90s is kind of over. Derrida, uh, Baudrillard and others are kind of like names of the past, right? These are not exactly the, the hip theorists right now. But I feel the cultural and political impact, particularly within the academy Uh, has had several afterlives, which are worth uh, deframing. It's sort of like it fits in kind of with the change and increased specialization uh, in terms of disciplinary boundaries, in terms of focus on small things within the academy, the resistance to sort of framing big ideas or debates, which has actually spread to political movements. I'll just give you one example. Uh, When in uh, Black Lives Matter, some factions within it, uh, particularly those associated, with is now called Afro-pessimism, Uh, always framed uh, the languages of black bodies instead of black people. And that comes straight out of uh, the legacy of, uh, you know, postmodern theory or whatever you want to call it. Uh, What do you think of these sort of afterlives and how should we think about this as something which has not just in terms of its branding, but has a more profound impact?
0: Well, so um, I, I was kind of being facetious, but I do think that it was a powerful actual Cold War project um, to suppress any discussion of class contradiction, so you could say that the anti-dialectical hardenigri types and Deleuze and Black Lives Matter and those kinds of things, who use difference versus um, contradiction to promote a kind of um, a politics of um, affect, I say um, those are those kinds of that kind of thinking continues the work of Cold War anti-Marxism. And people are attracted to it. Liberals are attracted to it and transgressive um, academic radicals are attracted to it because what it does is actually make fun of collective work, social democracy, planning, um, solidarity. they it, it, it kind of all makes fun of these um, old school Marxists who are seen as old fashioned, you know, um, deeply invested in class identity. And this is why, because since 1980, since 1980, the professional managerial class of which we are all members like of different strata has completely triumphed over the working class. And Jameson's um class status and the class status of the theory stars is what actually needs to be obfuscated and what they've done is trivialized academic and intellectual life and they've destroyed it for the pre, for the next generations by making everything precious and gestural and baroque so we see this I uh, they want to um they wanted to usher in an era of um um, Baroque decadence, if you like.
1: This is a, this is a really in, in, interesting point around this this um, postmodernism as a, as an alibi for the end of class and this uh, to try this boomer managerial class being being triumphalist. But but to move on to specific examples and
2: and to get a bit more into the into the. Sorry, um, George. Let me let me just jump in because I did want to push back on something um, earlier before we move on to some of the more specific cases.
1: Oh, okay. Fine. Fill <laughs> you know, phil, phil your boots. Go on.
2: Um, so Catherine, that was really good. And I mean, don't disagree with any of your characterization of postmodernism. I mean, in terms of the way that you evaluate it. But I'm still a bit unclear. I mean, are you against postmodern? I we're obviously, you're obviously against postmodernism in any normative sense, but are you against it in a descriptive sense? I mean, do you think that the term postmodernism is a useful category, and do you think that people like Jameson, when they described these developments, were being accurate in terms of developments in culture, at least, even if maybe they weren't extended to society as a whole? That you know that that the term postmodernism does. Uh, accurate is is a good descriptor for um you know developments in in culture looking at flux and depthlessness and all the kind of typical characteristics whether you take it in uh, literature or architecture or wherever
0: all right so it's only useful within architecture and design for the revival of decor and the private home as the um greatest ideal architecture rather than the um um, housing development. So you could think of the revival of decor, the revival of the irrational Chippendale top of the AT&T building, um, Jameson's description of um, Frank Gehry's home in Santa Monica as postmodern um, versus the Pruitt-Igoe housing project, which he doesn't even bother to mention, but he just alludes to that kind of opposition is very useful within the history of architecture. If you think about the, what happened with Grenfell Towers, the, the casing of that building in this flammable decorative material, that postmodern gesture is useful within that context. It's useful and descriptive because people can't, can't because people in Kensington and Chelsea couldn't stand the, you know, béton brut of the kind of socialist mm-hmm. ideals of the housing project. They were like, you know what? I don't want to look at it anymore. And so mm-hmm. the um, the Kensington, Chelsea housing um, development, whatever you call it here, decided, yes, we'll hire this design firm to clad our building in a kind of iridescent blue-green cladding that will kill 72 people eventually. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is a Completely interesting understanding of how postmodernism comes into disguise modernism to disguise its utopian aspirations within architecture, the irrational decor of it. of It's cheap, just
2: okay. okay but, don't surfaces, wanna, but don't you? surfaces,
0: superficiality. Let's not. Let's not it's actually great... renovate the building. Let's just it's put a, it in. Some it's like a great metaphor. Body.
3: It's a great metaphor, and I think I'm going to, yeah, I'm I'm going to, I'm definitely going to use it, I suppose, but I wanted to, um, they didn't, postmodernists, I mean, they, you know, I'm all for criticizing them, but they aren't responsible for the left's defeat. I mean, the left was defeated, and postmodernists might have kind of um, ornamented that defeat, as you say, but the left was, um, the left was responsible for its own failures, surely.
2: Let me and let me just add let me just add to that as well, because doesn't it rather undersell the actual transformations that are described as postmodernism um, by just saying, well, it was just because left intellectuals abandoned Marxism. Like there's a bigger world out there than just merely what happens in the academy or in the intellectual world in terms of these real transformations.
0: OK, so rather than engaging with real transformations like the minor strike or the um air traffic controller strike, Why talk? we engage in culture. So we turn away from labor. I'm not saying that, you know, Jameson defeated the miners. No, Thatcher defeated the miners, Mm -hmm. but there was a, there's an apologia and even uses that word like, oh my God, you know, we could be sad about the demise of modernism. We could use it as an apologia, but it's a hedging and a fudging. And it's a, um, Um, non combative way of looking at our defeats like if you're defeated you shouldn't be celebrating like decor or saying things like well it's both positive and negative if you're defeated you should be fighting or you should be saying we're defeated like let's come up with a new strategy political strategy was it really a new political strategy Hmm. no i feel like it was a pseudo populist pandering to alleged to the alleged tastes of the people
1: so picking up on this point about the alleged taste of the people, and to move, I guess, more into specific examples and, and some cultural products that we that we can interrogate to to <clears throat> to get a bit deeper into postmodernism. So, Phil, you had a you had a question about literature with a with a capital L.
3: Yeah, I can't believe you said cultural products because that sounds so postmodernist right there. You see, <laughs> um, it's uh, literature, literature that's, with a capital L. That's Adorno. No, no, that's that's um, Frankfurt School. Oh, uh, I stand, I stand, I stand corrected. Though I, have to, I was never, I was never. Uh, I have to confess my uh, my ignorance and um, my ignorance and general suspicion of Adorno, but um, that's a different debate. So, yeah, I wanted to flag up something you. Um, Mentioned because you specifically wanted to talk about Fred, um, Frederick Jameson's review of um, Carl over Knausgard's epic cycle of books, My Struggle. Now I haven't read them um, though. I'm very intrigued by everything that I've heard about them. I've had friends, colleagues who've read them and say they're completely gripping. Um, but hey, Jameson wrote a review recently um, in the um, London review of books of um, Knausgaard's cycle and i was i mean i read it and it's a it's very interesting the review itself is interesting because he it's the way in which he writes about this cycle and i wanted you to ask you because you had some thoughts about this review and also about knausgard as well
0: okay so um i was really appalled by the review because i don't think it really um Offers us anything insightful about Knausgaard, and maybe it's the perfect postmodern review because it's descriptive, it's decorative, it's placed in pseudo-dialogic, um, it, it plays the form. I'm just very interested in why the LRB asked Jameson to write the review, and uh, and why it gave them it gave him blanche to write it in this way. Because, in my view, and I've never, and I've not written about Knausgaard. I'm not sure that I would, um, but I've been trying to write my own memoir for years now um is that i i feel like um especially in volumes one and two it's an account of um a huge crisis in masculinity in the post-industrial world i mean canals guard um Jameson makes it sound like it's very glib and superficial and it's just about people getting mad at Knausgaard for writing about himself. There were real consequences to not, let's just say it's a really great account of a very brilliant young person's emergence into culture from in a provincial town in Scandinavia um, from a working class family, a family that's completely Philistine who moves up through some kind of social mobility and gains contact with um, cultural elites and his anger and his rage about his alcoholic father who literally dies in a pool of his own shit and vomit in their house um, and his rage against globalized um, taste cultures and imported italian food in stockholm is so real to me and so um intense because i come from a family that also has no idea what i do they don't read books and for us um and I feel like I'm I'm a few years older than Canales Guard. I'm obviously not a man. I but I feel like that sense of betrayal that happened in the 1970s when um, deindustrialization um, dashed all of the utopias of our youth and created like this consumer culture um, that real that really really like profoundly rocked my generation and. Um, I also think that the, canal, you know, Jameson says, like, his his writing is just an itemization of his feelings. It's absolutely not. There's some really, really haunting narrative moments that are so filled with pathos. And he says it's very superficial. It's actually about um, a young person growing up through um, this kind of Philistine provincial world, coming into some knowledge of art, and um, his encounters with um, Proust, for instance, or Munch or these modernists, uh, is so raw because he's not erudite. He just has like pure emotional reactions to them. So I don't know that it's helpful to say that Knausgaard is modernist or postmodernist. I feel like he documents the transition, uh, the damage that social mobility does to um the, chil- the child of Uneducated people, unprepared to deal with post-1972 globalization.
1: So the, the title of this um, <clears throat> interview is itemized. Or this this LRB, and I'm, we'll link to this in, in the show notes. But I guess to, just to put our fingers a little bit m- more on it, what is it that that Jameson misses? You, you kind of you you mention some of these things that he, that and there's a particularly important uh, scene about uh, Knalskard's father passing away and him him cleaning the sh- the shit up. Uh, literally and, and figuratively but what is it I guess to, to kind of to to prefigure a, a question we, we might we might address a bit more later what is it that the the postmodernist like a historical perspective misses in this kind of text?
0: Um, I think that in the um, post Fordist de-industrialized world like Gender relations are deeply, deeply in flux, hmm. and all, and the writer has to live const. The writer who's successful lives constantly haunted by the specter of publicity. So you know we were joking about constant branding, but Knazgard's um, wife has a nervous breakdown as he's writing about their marriage and publicizing it. Hmm. She has serious mental health issues. There's a gender problem here, but it but it really is. I mean, um, Knaskard is performing this kind of like radical transparency. And I and, and the damage that it does to people. He he documents every moment of their marriage. He documents even the conception of his third child after a horrible domestic quarrel <sighs> that they have. I mean, there are incidents here that I don't think you can be reduced to like a shopping list itemization. One of my favorite moments about the crisis of masculinity in the post industrial world, which I, and I totally loved because I I took my son to these little like mommy and me music classes was that in the Scandinavian world, fathers have to take paternity leave and mothers get to go back to work. Right. So um, Knausgaard had to take one of his little babies to a music mommy and me melody group. And he's there in a rage like lusting after the little music the music the musical teacher and he's got this like infant in his lap like doing like you know the wheels on the bus go round and round or whatever song they're singing in this you know stock in this ritzy stockholm mommy and me music class and he's like he has the hots for teacher and I, and I just think it's so tragic and funny and like how, how, how do you be how are you a man you know if you've got your toddler in your lap and you, you've got the hot teacher and your wife is back at work it's this is what happens gender equality that's perfectly um manicured for certain elite classes mm. we don't know what people are good for we don't know what genders are good for and it's extremely sad
1: and that's where literature steps in to, to capture some of that um yes But to, to continue the the, the conversation, moving from literature to architecture, because we're obviously a very erudite podcast in general. Um, Phil, uh, no, Alex, in fact. I
0: feel like I've silenced all of you with that latest anecdote. <laughs> no. That's a good. That's a,
1: that's a good thing though. Um, we, we yeah. So Alex, I think you you had a you had a question about. About architecture, and it's well, something that, did, that Catherine mentioned earlier. To yeah, up
2: on. it is. It is about architecture and and the built environment, but it also, I guess, uh, applies to what you're saying about literature and about kind of postmodern culture in general. Um, about whether you know whether there's any going back, whether the uh, whether the rat is out of its cage, you know, whether there's like whether there's any way of, of returning to modernism. So, I mean, specifically, and it is something which you already referred to earlier on about. Pruitt-Igo, and specifically this documentary, which I really enjoyed, called "The Myth of Pruitt-Igo," which tries to counter the narrative that the destruction of the Pruitt-Igo public housing project was, ipso facto, the end of modernism, um, because in some sense it needed to end at that point, and really looks at the specific cases at why Pruitt, the Pruitt-Igo public housing project, failed, specifically, you know, underfunding, neglect racism uh, and then also you know wider demographic and geographic changes where by an overpopulated saint louis became underpopulated and you know you can see mm-hmm. the same trajectory in detroit or various other uh, industrial or post-industrial midwestern cities so i guess you really like this what what did you find was the important point in it is it that modernism isn't dead um and I think, you know, aesthetically, you can say that there's modernism carried on in some ways, but obviously lost its main political thrust, which is the notion of, of mass progress or progress for the masses and that the masses can be included through um, often kind of top down or by certainly utopian schemes for the built environment. Um, so, you know, is modernism dead? Can you go? Can we be retro modernists? Is that correct? Sure.
0: Well, what's happening is that there is, especially in London and in um, a lot, uh, in the United States to a certain degree, there's been a revival of um, brutalism of um, large concrete um, buildings. There's been a revisiting of what that's meant, what those kinds of large um, um, infrastructure projects mean in, among, in architecture itself. So, yes, there there's a feeling among architects that um, modernism as a project was not exhausted. It was politically defeated because mm. people wanted austerity mm. yeah. for public projects. I mean, one of the things that happened with Prudica was a, a concerted effort to... um. Um, watch the projects degenerate by not replacing light bulbs in hallways and making them dangerous and crime infested. But I thought what was really amazing about the testimony of um, the African-American families and the women who lived there was that it created, when they first went in there was such a, an incredible sense of community and utopianism. Like They they lived on high floors, they had beautiful views, mm-hmm. they, their homes resembled the homes of decorating magazines because the modernist aesthetic in the 50s was the, you know, most progressive and popular one like they saw themselves as parts of a project because their living rooms Mm. look like the living rooms of the other people so what happened with like in london for instance is that in this um, drive to neglect estate housing and to drive it into the ground, you let something, which I think was an architectural gem, actually, Robin Hood gardens go to waste. And then they just dynamited it with such an incredibly um, precious piece of real estate. Now they've d- redirected it as, you know, um, luxury housing. What happened with a lot of these large, um infra- there's a lot of these large housing projects was that they were, they were built in London and um it on very precious real estate. So people it was looking over the water. People wanted that real estate back in the deindustrializing American Midwest. Um, the Pruitt Igo housing project has gone back to forest land in mm-hmm. large part, because of what you said, depopulation, because the industrial working classes were no longer needed in that place. But I remember vividly from the um, documentary, these African-American women talking about how um, how wonderful their childhoods were in the projects when they first moved in, and how it was such a precious thing to them, and now there's no trace of it. And so I feel like modernism in architecture, in terms of large, utopic, um projects that are made for collective living, that has not been exhausted as an idea or an ideal. Mm -hmm. People hated social democracy. They hated investment in public goods. And so a lot of the neglected housing estates that we see in the UK today, for instance, are half built. Like people wanted, they built the estates and then they didn't build the swimming pools or they ran out of money for like the um, amenities or they took the park away and they built extra housing on the park. It was... It was a concerted effort to starve out um, public housing. And yeah. that began almost the moment the first major public housing estates were completed because the right understood what a threat it was to this idea of the private home and to the idea of um, um You know, personal responsibility in this Ian Brandian cutthroat world that they wanted to deliver us to. Mm. So they very much understood why the um, why high quality public housing would create public consciousness and collective um, um, responsibility and collective goods. And they um, they worked against it. So when I condemn postmodernism, I feel like it's giving up ground on social democracy, on public goods, mm. on social investment, and no, that's what makes me mad about it.
2: No, absolutely. And I, as you say, there are some really beautiful moments where you know the woman describes the apartment that she just moves into, and I guess in the sometime in the early sixties as a poor person's penthouse, and how proud of it she was, and that this view that poor people weren't didn't have access to before living in the tenements uh, suddenly mm. had. Uh, that that said, I mean. There obviously the, the documentary very well captures how um, the contradictions of this as well the way in which these public housing projects were used to segregate people rather than integrate them um, and all the kind of the the racist sort of management of of, of public goods that was the case at the time uh, the way that it was expected, all the kind of social control and demands that were placed on residents for example that that fathers weren't allowed to live with their with their children and so on. Um, so, I mean, I guess my question, just to, to push back on this, is, okay, well, maybe if modernism wasn't exhausted but was politically defeated, what then do we need to recapture from, from modernism? Because um, it, obviously that we wouldn't want to just return to that, the the arrangement of the modernism of the 50s and the 60s, which for all its utopianism was also very high-handed and was often driven by elite imperatives.
0: Well, um, well, I might differ with you about this a little bit, because I think that in the way, in the face of economic, of environmental collapse, we do need a lot of large infrastructural projects that have... I, oh, yeah, want, I'm good with that. If you want, uh, okay. So um, the high-handedness might have had to do with some, you know, bad social work ideas of um creating intact families, but I do feel like large infrastructural projects and planning is the only way that we're going to get out of... The um, environmental catastrophe that we're headed towards.
1: So I think uh, I think Ben had a had a question on this um, on, on on this topic to to jump in on.
4: Um, I think one of the more damaging effects, and again, when I spoke about afterlives, I think this has been a general cultural effect of uh, this moment, is a sort of hostility to uh, history, and this goes in the sense yes. of. Historical consciousness in having an active participating engagement with history as a collective project of uh, in this in the case of um, a country like South Africa, nation building for whatever it's pro- for its problems or in the case of having uh, promoting some engagement with the past as part of a collective project going forward. This right. damaging effect means that uh, historical ignorance is a sort of Celebrated. A general fact of mm. It's yep. celebrated and it's also championed, it's championed as a sort of rejection of the sort of um, perhaps an enlightenment uh, history of reason and progress or, I mean, without falling into Wiggish categories, that things have improved and it's sort of a embrace of things have always got worse. And I think this has uh, been hugely damaging, not only in uh, its uh, sort of political co- consequences, but in terms of trying to think way out of the end of the end of history.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. And um, I didn't quite know how to bridge this topic because it's such a volatile one. And Angela Nagel got in such big trouble for um, talking about how the alt-right learned from the transgressive left. But I do think there's a lot of truth to what she said there, because um, and she didn't go deep enough, I think, because within um, the postmodernist view of irony, for instance, and decontextualization, um, you can see how the alt-right is able to take on the um, insignia of um, fascist states and of Nazism and use it ironically or, you know, um, with a new twist on history. And so their LARPing is part of this kind of ironic instrumentalization or high stylization of historical signs of signifiers without signifies. I don't know if you guys remember that, but, you know, here's something not to belabor too much, but um, the postmodernists celebrated also the um, um, freedom from referentiality, that um, language could have, that signs could have, that there was a kind of radical decontextualization, which was just about play of signifiers. And so we could use um, um, Doric columns from Greece in our house, but then have a little, you know, um, pantheon-like dome as well. And so creating these grotesque, eclectic, dilettantish monstrosities was just part of play. Well, you know, politically. I, think, it some, I
4: okay. think, in intellectually, there's also another example of this, which is uh, still somewhat more in fashion, but uh, than other tendencies. But something is reading uh, completely reactionary uh, cultural and political figures as, in fact, more radical on the left than yes. actual left. I mean, yes. for example, although I'm not saying you shouldn't read Karl Schmidt. Karl, the championing of Karl Schmidt was one such example. And another such example is the continued uh, deference placed on Heidegger, because the more yes. we know about Heidegger, the le- le- less oh. likable he is. I mean, he seems like, a, by our current standards, just a complete and open Nazi.
0: Well, so um, I was. Gonna, I'm so glad you mentioned Heidegger, um, because in that cultural logic of late capitalism. Um, Jameson talks about Van Gogh's famous um, paintings of shoes, and he talks about the misery of the peasant life and, you know, these shoes, and he wants to compare these this painting of Van Gogh's shoes with um, um, Andy Warhol's um, diamond dust shoes. Who does he go to there, though, to make that comparison? Heidegger. Heidegger mm-hmm. is a house god for this kind of like continental theory at this point. And I, I, you know, I'm not even going to talk about the biographical Heidegger. Let's just talk about the reactionary modernism that Heidegger represents. Heidegger represents a kind of, a desire for the re-mythologization of philosophy and ontology during the interwar period when the European elites were so fucked, right? That, um, people could imagine completely different futures because the caste system in Europe was broken by World War I. And you have these reactionary right-wing modernists who want to go back to some kind of mythological being. And Heidegger is like, you know, the thinker supreme of this. And I'm always surprised by these Derridians and these post structuralists who are going to Heide- Heideggerian ont- ontogeny and ontology. I'm like, what the heck, you guys, like you're going back to like the most primitive, crude forms of modernism in the name of post-structuralism. That's ridiculous.
2: But but I think as the way that you put it in terms of um, foregrounding the question of rationalism or anti-rationalism is right and does bring us back to what is important about all this and not just about in terms of the period, periodization, but that, in fact, uh, this rationalism and anti-rationalism is a thread that runs through, you know, modern European history. And, you know, postmodernism is one example of this, you know, irrationalism at a very late date, as you would, as, you know, if you would.
0: Um, you could say that um Heideggerian re is also a kind of reification of irrationality. Like one of the great things about Marx and about Freud is that for political economy on one hand and Freud for um the unconscious on the other, they said there's a reason. We we can deduce certain laws and principles universal principles about these things. And the postmodernists were like, nope, that's a grand narrative. Nope, we don't like those things.
1: So, uh, Catherine, you, you've previously spoken about aesthetic populism. Yes. So could you un- unpack this uh, a, a bit?
0: So that us? was one, also one of the, um, so I'm going to contextualize um, Jameson, for instance, that was one also one of the great breaks within um, postmodernism and postmodernist theory and cultural studies was that, they, they they were fighting against these, um, let's say like right-wing William Buckley, Ellen um, Bloom types who wanted to create cultural hierarchies like there's finer literature, there's the finest literature, there's mediocre literature and postmodernist aesthetic populism would say, you know, the popular is the good in some sense. Mm-hmm. So um, that is an overturning of categories or Kantian regimes of judgment that did seem to be liberating but liberating in a very constrained cultural domain.
1: What do you think has been the consequence of that? I mean, do you, do you think we're living in, a, in the shadow of, of, of the success of that idea where basically there's no real distinction between high culture and low culture? there's yeah, no I think real... there's, a
0: general dis, there's a general diffusion. There's a general mm. eclecticism, a general non-differentiation. So um, like Instagram art is art. Yeah, I don't think it is, but you know, <laughs> but it's all right, you know. Um, I, I bed and Tumblr
4: poetry. <laughs> Tumblr poetry,
0: right? But and I, I do, I do find um, um, those effects of non-differentiation. This is where I get more Frankfurt Schoolian. Um, part of this general lack of seriousness mm. that um, postmodernists, underwrite and i guess this is what you guys have been pushing back on me with and i think it's good like there are real after effects like there's no way we can put this to bed like i keep trying to contain it and um uh you guys keep saying you know that it's left these marks and this legacy for us that is very difficult to reckon with but it's created this sort of non um uh, say like um aesthetic effects that allow for non-differentiation and non-seriousness. But I think more um, powerfully, and once again, maybe I'm blaming the intellectuals for something that's happened, you know, more deeply in political economy is that there's a kind of um, eclecticism that postmodernists represent that has shaken, I think, general confidence in the intellectual. So there's a non-differentiation as well of intellectual life Mm -hmm. and, um, if we had taken labor more seriously and intellectual labor more seriously, maybe people like Jameson would have done more to produce better conditions of work for you, young PhDs, who should be getting to publish in the LRB Um but let's just celebrate the podcast because, you know, I, I said, let's not um, put these things to um let uh, print, but, um, you know, the 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 conditions of work within the academy have been really neglected and all of you have inherited you're all so smart and bright and you're all, and we've inherited, and there are no jobs for you, and um, this is a whole theory of culture that doesn't take the worker very seriously, doesn't take labor conditions seriously at all, minimalizes and dis- diminishes class identity as such and so i feel like um that that's why i feel like i have to do penance because i feel like you know i committed the error of um of Following this for you know brief period of time during my graduate school years, but i uh, but I never after a certain moment like used postmodernist except as a term of historicization. So I I, th-
4: I think uh, when you speak about labor conditions, that just brings me to mind. I think the sort of final culmination of uh, this moment, which was this uh, Avital Ronell incident at my university, New York University. Yes were kind of exploded uh when she was accused of uh sort of sexually harassing her graduate student. At the very least it came up sort of like this creepy cult of the intellectual, which she kind of controlled and manipulated him for years. This is celebrated as uh mentorship when it was just really bad labor conditions. Yes. And uh and you saw finally all of these big names on the sort of Pomo French theory side, whatever you want to call it, signing these letters of solidarity in favor of her. And it was portrayed as the supreme act of ethics was her like the way of teaching this right. is like uh,
0: so So um, I wrote about that but I think that more um, more terrifyingly there were a lot of critiques of Jameson at the time there were very um, serious critiques of how um, American consumer culture was already very developed in the 20s and in the 40s and um, decor was did not come into being in the 1980s but there was an idea that if you were a theory star, any kind of debate or critique was obviated. You didn't need to respond to any of your critics. You didn't need to justify your positions. Um, rather than virtue signaling, you had theory signaling. Just as long as you made the right theory noises, you could basically say whatever you wanted. You could do whatever you wanted. And um, you, you could say Schmidt, Benjamin um Adorno, or no no, one likes Adorno, actually, he was in Italy, so Schmidt, Heidegger, Levinas, and it was a pseudo-religious, cultish aspect to people. It was seen as ethical. Oh yes, they ethics. loved ethics right. instead of politics. So there's a certain kind of adulation of the star that is very non-critical. And I think that when you have an academic and intellectual sphere or a public sphere where um, contradiction and critique don't mean anything at all, then there's like a trivialization of the entire project of what we do.
2: It's telling, I think, that you know, there's no one out there defending cultural judgment. You know, An old form of, of elitism just isn't there. And a good point that Ben made earlier is precisely that the irony of this is that it's now the populist right who are attacking cultural, you know, cultural uh, elite or, you know, liberals um, for being elitist and pointy headed intellectuals when it is precisely them who have been the populists in the in the previous round of things. They're the ones who have tried to make culture accessible and popular and been very populist about things, breaking down all sorts of boundaries And not making any sorts of differentiation, which is, you know, exactly how you spoke about. And I guess the Jameson kind of foresees this or already refers to it uh, in the terms uh, that he talks about critical distance and the lack of critical distance that postmodernism has so that in our times, cultural production is entirely wrapped up with the market, that everything is entirely commodified and there's nothing to be found beyond it. And that kind of breaks down all distinctions. And I guess this would be the argument about postmodernism being something more fundamental than merely just left intellectuals abandoning Marxism, but that something more fundamental has transformed. Um, right. so, so, so just to bring this, just one example, I think, which is this this entire co-optation of any, sorts of, any sort of autonomous culture by the market is, you know, Kurt Cobain killed himself because he realized he couldn't be a rebel anymore. And that was 25 years ago. He realized that everything he would do, which is supposedly rebellious, was already part of this system. Um, so where does that leave us as a final question? Can there be a genuinely rebellious culture anymore? Or has postmodernism been successful and and wiped out the possibility of any autonomous culture?
0: I think we've overestimated the political value of rebellious culture. I think we're at a time when we need to be better members of the professional managerial class, real socialist, committed members of the professional managerial class. I want us to be um, truly responsible bureaucrats, like with party discipline, who are able to execute goals on large scales. Like, fuck cultural rebellion.
1: Hear, hear. Here. What a, what a, yeah, yeah great great note to finish on so just say thank you so much to Catherine for coming on thank you all. again thank and you for, all. for traveling all the way to the uk specifically <laughs> to record this,
3: this podcast <laughs>